Hello everybody, it's time for Rob Reads to You again, uh, where tonight we will be finishing up Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Um, so last time we uh, basically were setting up the finale with uh, Paul Irving coming over to visit uh, uh, Miss Lavender Lewis and, you know, kind of rekindle their uh, their love affair. And uh, so now they, they presumably got engaged because he put his arm around her and, you know, she would never let him take the liberty otherwise. Uh, and so we are coming in on the conclusion. All right. It brings us to chapter 29, Poetry and Prose. For the next month, Anne lived in what, for Avonlea, might be called a whirl of excitement. The preparation of her own modest outfit for Redmond was of secondary importance. Miss Lavender was getting ready to be married, and the stone house was the scene of endless consultations and plannings and discussions, with Charlotta IV hovering on the outskirts of things in agitated delight and wonder. Then the dressmaker came, and there was the rapture and wretchedness of choosing fashions and being fitted. Anne and Diana spent half their time at Echo Lodge, and there were nights when Anne could not sleep for wondering whether she had done right in advising Miss Lavender to select brown rather than navy blue for her traveling dress, and to have her gray silk made princess. Everybody concerned in Miss Lavender's story was very happy. Paul Irving rushed to Green Gables to talk the news over with Anne as soon as his father had told him. "'I knew I could trust father to pick me out a nice little second mother,' he said proudly. "'It's a fine thing to have a father you can depend on, teacher.' I just love Miss Lavender. Grandma is pleased, too. She says she's real glad Father didn't pick out an American for his second wife, because, although it turned out all right the first time, such a thing wouldn't be likely to happen twice. Mrs. Lynde says she thoroughly approves of the match, and thinks it's likely Miss Lavender will give up her queer notions and be like other people now that she's going to be married. But I hope she won't give up her queer notions, teacher, because I like them, and I don't want her to be like other people. There are too many other people around as it is. You know, teacher." Charlotte the Fourth was another radiant person. Oh, Miss Shirley, ma'am, it has all turned out so beautiful. When Mr. Irving and Miss Lavender come back from their tower, I'm to go up to Boston and live with them. And me only fifteen, and the other girls never went till they were sixteen. Ain't Mr. Irving splendid? He just worships the ground she treads on, and it makes me feel so queer sometimes to see the look in his eyes when he's watching her. It beggars description, Miss Shirley, ma'am. I'm awful thankful they're so fond of each other. It's the best way when all's said and done, though some folks can get along without it. I've got an aunt who's been married three times, and she says she married the first time for love, and the last two times for strictly business, and was happy with all three except at the times of the funerals. But I think she took a rest, Miss Shirley, ma'am. Oh, it's all so romantic, breathed Anne to Marilla that night. If I hadn't taken the wrong path that day we went to Mr. Kimball's, I'd never have known Miss Lavender. And if I hadn't met her, I'd never have taken Paul there and he'd never have written to his father about visiting Miss Lavender just as Mr. Irving was starting for San Francisco. Mr. Irving says whenever he got that letter, he made up his mind to send his partner to San Francisco and come here instead. He hadn't heard anything of Miss Lavender for fifteen years. Somebody had told him then that she was to be married, and he thought she was, and never asked anybody anything about her. And now everything has come right, and I had a hand in bringing it about. Perhaps, as Mrs. La Lynde says, Everything is foreordained, and it was bound to happen anyway. But even so, it's nice to think one was an instrument used by predestination. Yes, indeed, it's very romantic. I can't say that it's so terribly romantic at all, said Marilla rather crisply. 
Rilla thought Anne was too worked up about it, and had plenty to do with getting ready for college without traipsing to Echo Lodge two days out of three helping Miss Lavender. In the first place, two young fools quarrel and turn sulky. Then Steve Irving goes to the States and after a spell gets married up there, and is perfectly happy from all accounts. Then his wife dies and after a decent interval he thinks he'll come home and see if his first fancy will have him. Meanwhile, she's been living single, probably because nobody nice enough came along to want her, and they meet and agree to be married after all. Now where's the romance and all that? Well, there isn't any when you put it that way, gasped Anne, rather as if somebody had thrown cold water over her. I suppose that's how it looks in prose, but it's very different if you look at it through poetry, and I think it's nicer. Anne recovered herself, and her eyes shone and her cheeks flushed. To look at it through poetry... Marilla glanced at the radiant young face and refrained from sur further sarcastic comments. Perhaps some realization came to her that, after all, it was better to have, like Anne, the vision and the faculty divine, that gift which the world cannot bestow or take away, of looking at life through some transfiguring or revealing medium, whereby everything seemed appareled in celestial light, wearing a glory and a freshness not visible to those who, like herself and Charlotte the Fourth, looked at things only through prose. "'When's the wedding to be?' she asked after a pause. "'The last Wednesday in August. They are to be married in the garden under the honeysuckle trellis, the very spot where Mr. Irving proposed to her twenty-five years ago. Marilla, that is romantic, even in prose. There's to be nobody there except Mrs. Irving and Paul and Gilbert and Diana and I. Why's Gilbert going to be there? What does he have to do with any of this?' Gilbert and Diana and I, and Miss Lavender's cousins. And they will leave on the six o'clock train for a trip to the Pacific Coast. When they come back in the fall, Paul and Charlotte the Fourth are to go up to Boston and live with them. But Echo Lodge is to be left just as it is. Only, of course, they'll sell the hens and cow and board up the windows. And every summer they're coming down to live in it. I'm so glad. It would have hurt me dreadfully next winter at Redmond to think of that dear stone house all stripped and deserted with empty rooms or far worse still, with other people living in it. But I can think of it now, just as I've always seen it, waiting happily for the summer to bring life and laughter back to it again. There was more romance in the world than that which had, had fallen to the share of the middle-aged lovers of the stone house. Anne stumbled suddenly on it one evening when she went over to Orchard Slope by the woodcut and came out on into the berry garden. Diana Barry and Fred Wright were standing together under the big willow, Diana was leaning against the gray trunk, her lashes cast down on very crimson cheeks. One hand was held by Fred, who stood with his face bent toward her, stammering something in low, earnest tones. There were no other people in the world except their two selves at that magic moment, so neither of them saw Anne, who, after one dazed glance of comprehension, turned and sped noiselessly back through the spruce wood, never stopping till she gained her own gable room, where she sat breathlessly down by her window and tried to collect her scattered wits. "'Diana and Fred are in love with each other,' she gasped. "'Oh, it does seem so... so... so hopelessly grown up!' Anne of late had not been without her suspicions that Diana was proving false to the melancholy, Byronic hero of her early dreams." But as things seen are mightier than things heard, or suspected, the realization that it was actually so came to her with almost the shock of perfect surprise. This was succeeded by a queer little lonely feeling, as if 
somehow Diana had gone forward into a new world, shutting a gate behind her, leaving Anne on the outside. Things are changing so fast it almost frightens me, Anne thought a little sadly, and I'm afraid that this can't help making some difference between Diana and me. I'm sure I can't tell her all my secrets after this. She might tell Fred. And what can she see in Fred? He's very nice and jolly, but he's just Fred Wright. It is always a very puzzling question. What can somebody see in somebody else? But how fortunate, after all, that it is so. For, if everybody saw alike, well, in that case, as the old Indian said, everybody would want my squaw. All right. It was plain that Diana did see something in Fred Wright, however Anne's eyes might be holden. Diana came to Green Gables the next evening, a pensive, shy young lady, and told Anne the whole story in the dusky seclusion of the East Gable. Both girls cried and kissed and laughed. I'm so happy, said Diana, but it does seem ridiculous to think of me being engaged. What is it really like to be engaged? asked Anne curiously. Well, that all depends on who you're engaged to answered Diana, with that maddening air of superior wisdom always assumed by those who are engaged over those who are not. It's perfectly lovely to be engaged to Fred, but I think it would be simply horrid to be engaged to anyone else. There's not much comfort for the rest of us in that, seeing that there is only one Fred, laughed Anne. Oh, Anne, you don't understand, said Diana in vexation. I didn't mean that. It's so hard to explain. Never mind, you'll understand sometime when your own turn comes. Bless you, dearest of Diana's, I understand now. What is an imagination for if not to enable you to peep at life through other people's eyes? You must be my bridesmaid, you know, Anne. Promise me that, wherever you may be when I'm married. I'll come from the ends of the earth if necessary, promised Anne solemnly. Of course, it won't be for ever so long yet, said Diana, blushing. Three years at the very least, for I'm only eighteen and Mother says no daughter of hers shall be married before she's twenty-one. Besides, Fred's father is going to buy the Abraham Fletcher farm for him, and he says he's got to have it two-thirds paid for before he'll give it to him on his own name. But three years isn't any too much time to get ready for housekeeping, for I haven't a speck of fancy work made yet. But I'm going to begin crocheting doilies tomorrow. Myra Gillis had thirty-seven doilies when she was married, and I'm determined I shall have as many as she did. I suppose it would be perfectly impossible to keep house with only thirty-six doilies conceded Anne, with a solemn face but dancing eyes. Diana looked hurt. I didn't think you'd make fun of me, Anne, she said reproachfully. Dearest, I wasn't making fun of you, cried Anne repentantly. I was only teasing you a bit. I think you'll make the sweetest little housekeeper in the world, and I think it's perfectly lovely of you to be planning already for your home of dreams. Anne had no sooner uttered the phrase home of dreams than it captivated her fancy, and she immediately began the erection of one of her own. It was, of course, tenanted by an ideal master, dark, proud, and melancholy. But oddly enough, Gilbert Blythe persisted in hanging about too, helping her arrange pictures, lay out gardens, and accomplish sundry other tasks which a proud and melancholy hero evidently considered beneath his dignity. Anne tried to banish Gilbert's image from her castle in Spain, but somehow he went on being there. So Anne, being in a hurry, gave up the attempt and pursued her aerial architecture with such success that her home dreams was built and furnished before Diana spoke again. 
I suppose, Anne, you must think it's funny I should like Fred so well when he's so different from the kind of man I've always said I would marry. The tall, slender kind. But somehow I wouldn't want Fred to be tall and slender. Because, don't you see, he wouldn't be Fred then. Of course, added Diana rather dolefully, we will be a dreadfully pudgy couple. But after all, that's better than one of us being short and fat and the other tall and lean, like Morgan Sloan and his wife. Mrs. Lynde says it always makes her think of the long and short of it when she sees them together. Well, said Anne to herself that night, as she brushed her hair before her gilt-framed mirror, I am glad Diana is so happy and satisfied. But when my turn comes, if it ever does, I do hope there'll be something a little more thrilling about it. But then Diana thought so too once. I've heard her say time and again she'd never get engaged any pokey commonplace way. He'd have to do something splendid to win her. But she has changed. Perhaps I'll change too. But I won't. I'm determined I won't. Oh, I think these engagements are dreadfully unsettling things when they happen to your intimate friends. Chapter 30 A Wedding at the Stone House The last week in August came. Miss Lavender was to be married in it. Two weeks later, Anne and Gilbert would leave for Redmond College. In a week's time, Mrs. Rachel Lynde would move to Green Gables and set up her Lairies and Panates in the erstwhile spare room, which was already prepared for her coming. She had sold all her superfluous household plenishings by auction and was at present reveling in the congenial occupation of helping the Allens pack up. Mr. Allen was to preach his farewell sermon the next Sunday. The old order was changing rapidly to give place to the new, as Anne felt with a little sadness threading all her excitement and happiness. "'Changes ain't totally pleasant, but they're excellent things,' said Mr. Harrison philosophically. Two years is about long enough for things to stay exactly the same. "'If they stayed put any longer, they might grow mossy.'" Mr. Harrison was smoking on his veranda. His wife had self-sacrificingly told him that he might smoke in the house if he took care to sit by an open window. Mr. Harrison rewarded this concession by going outside altogether to smoke in fine weather, and so mutual goodwill reigned. Anne had come over to ask Mrs. Harrison for some of her yellow dahlias. She and Diana were going through to Echo Lodge that evening to help Miss Lavender and Charlotta IV with their final preparations for the morrow's bridal. Miss Lavender herself never had dahlias. She did not like them, and they would not have suited the fine retirement of her old-fashioned garden. But flowers of any kind were rather scarce in Avonlea, and the neighboring districts that summer, thanks to Uncle Abe's storm, and Anne and Diana thought that a certain old cream-colored stone jug, usually kept sacred to doughnuts, brimmed over with yellow dahlias, would be just the thing to set in a dim angle of the stone house stairs, against the dark corner of the red hall paper. "'I suppose you'll be starting off for college in a fortnight's time,' continued Mr. Harrison." Well, we're going to miss you an awful lot, Emily and me. To be sure, Mrs. Lynde will be over there in your place. There ain't nobody but a substitute can be found for him. The irony of Mr. Harrison's tone is quite untransferable to paper. Luckily, you're listening this, to this instead of reading it. In spite of his wife's intimacy with Mrs. Lynde, the best that could be said of the relationship between her and Mr. Harrison, even under the new regime, was that they preserved an armed neutrality. Yes, I'm going, said Anne. I'm very glad with my head, and I'm very sorry with my heart. I suppose you'll be scooping up all the honors that are lying round loose at Redmond. 
I may try for one or two of them, confessed Anne, but I don't care so much for things like that as I did two years ago. What I want to get out of my college course is some knowledge of the best way to, of living life and doing the most and best with it. I want to learn to understand and help other people and myself. Mr. Harrison nodded. That's the idea exactly. That's what college ought to be for, instead of for turning out a lot of B.A.s, so chock full of book learning and vanity that there ain't room for anything else. You're all right. College won't be able to do you much harm, I reckon. Diana and Anne drove over to Echo Lodge after tea, taking with them all the flowery spoil that several predatory expeditions in their own and their neighbors' gardens had yielded. They found the stone house agog with excitement. Charlotta the Fourth was flying around with such vim and briskness that her blue bows seemed really to possess the power of being everywhere at once. Like the helmet of Navarre, Charlotta's blue bows waved ever in the thickest of the fray. "'Praise be to goodness you've come,' she said devoutly, "'for there's heaps of things to do, and the frosting on that cake won't harden, and there's all the silver to be rubbed up yet, and the horsehair trunk to be packed.' And the roosters for the chicken salad are running out there beyond the hen's house, crowing, Miss Shirley, ma'am. And Miss Lavender ain't to be trusted to do such a thing. I was thankful when Mr. Irving came a few minutes ago and took her off for a walk in the woods. Courtin's all right in its place, Miss Shirley, ma'am, but if you try to mix it up with cooking and scouring, everything's spoiled. That's my opinion, Miss Shirley, ma'am. Anne and Diana worked so heartily that by ten o'clock even Charlotta the Fourth was satisfied. She braided her hair in innumerable plates and took her weary little bones off to bed. But I'm sure I shan't sleep a blessed wink, Miss Shirley, ma'am, for fear that something will go wrong at the last minute. The cream won't whip, or Mr. Irving will have a stroke and not be able to come. He isn't in the habit of having strokes, is he? asked Diana, the dimpled corners of her mouth twitching. To Diana, Charlotta the Fourth was, if not exactly a thing of beauty, certainly a joy forever. They're not things that go by habit said Charlotta the Fourth with dignity. They just happen, and there you are. Anybody can have a stroke. You don't have to learn how. Mr. Irving looks a lot like an uncle of mine that had one once, just as he was sitting down to dinner one day. But maybe everything will go all right. In this world, you've just got to hope for the best and prepare for the worst and take whatever God sends. The only thing I'm worried about is that it won't be fine tomorrow, said Diana. Uncle Abe predicted rain for the middle of the week. And ever since the big storm, I can't help believing there's a good deal in what Uncle Abe says. Anne, who knew better than Diana just how much Uncle Abe had to do with the storm, was not much disturbed by this. She slept the sleep of the just and weary, and was roused at an unearthly hour by Charlotta the Fourth. Oh, Miss Shirley, ma'am, it's awful to call you so early, came wailing through the keyhole, but there's so much to do yet. And oh, Miss Shirley, ma'am, I'm scared it's going to rain, and I wish you'd get up and tell me you think it ain't. Anne flew to the window, hoping against hope that Charlotta the Fourth was saying this merely by way of rousing her effectually. But alas, the morning did look unpropitious. Below the window, Miss Lavender's garden, which should have been a glory of pale virgin sunshine, lay dim and windless, and the sky over the firs was dark with moody clouds. "'Isn't it too mean?' said Diana. "'We must hope for the best,' said Anne determinedly. If it only doesn't actually rain, a cool, pearly, gray day like this would really be nicer than hot sunshine. But it will rain, mourned Charlotta, creeping into the room, a figure of fun, with her many braids wound about her head, the ends tied up with white thread sticking out in all directions. It'll hold off till the last minute, and then poor cats and dogs, 
and all the folks will get sopping and track mud all over the house, and they won't be able to be married under the honeysuckle, and it's awful unlucky for no sun to shine on a bride. Say what you will, Miss Shirley, ma'am. I knew things were going too well to last. Charlotta the Fourth seemed certainly to have barred a leaf out of Miss Eliza Andrews's book. It did not rain, though it kept on looking as if it meant to. By noon, the rooms were decorated, the table beautifully laid, and upstairs was waiting a bride, adorned for her husband. "'You do look sweet,' said Anne rapturously. "'Lovely,' echoed Diana. "'Everything's ready, Miss Shirley, ma'am, and nothing dreadful has happened yet,' was Charlotta's cheerful statement as she betook herself to her little back room to dress. Out came all the braids. The resultant rampant crinkliness was plaited into two tails and tied, not with two bows alone, but with four, of brand new ribbon, brightly blue. The two upper bows rather gave the impression of overgrown wings sprouting from Charlotta's neck, somewhat after the fashion of Raphael's cherubs. But Charlotta the Fourth thought them very beautiful, and after she had rustled into a white dress, so stiffly starched that it could stand alone, she surveyed herself in her glass with great satisfaction, a satisfaction which lasted until she went out in the hall and caught a glimpse through the spare room door of a tall girl in some softly clinging gown, pinning white star-like flowers on the smooth ripples of her ruddy hair. Oh, I'll never be able to look like Miss Shirley, thought poor Charlotta despairingly. You just have to be born so, I guess. Don't seem as if any amount of practice could give you that air. By one o'clock, the guests had come including Mr. and Mrs. Allen, for Mr. Allen was to perform the ceremony in the absence of the Grafton minister on his vacation. There was no formality about the marriage. Miss Lavender came down the stairs to meet her bridegroom at the foot, and as he took her hand, she lifted her big brown eyes to his with a look that made Charlotta the Fourth, who intercepted it, feel queerer than ever. They went out to the honeysuckle arbor, where Mr. Allen was awaiting them. The guests grouped themselves as they pleased, Anne and Diana stood by the old stone bench, with Charlotte the Fourth between them, desperately clutching their hands in her cold, tremulous little paws. Mr. Allen opened his blue book, and the ceremony proceeded. Just as Miss Lavender and Stephen Irving were pronounced man and wife, a very beautiful and symbolic thing happened. The sun suddenly burst through the gray and poured a flood of radiance on the happy bride. Instantly, the garden was alive with dancing shadows and flickering lights. What a lovely omen, thought Anne as she ran to kiss the bride. Then the three girls left the rest of the guests laughing around the bridal pair while they flew into the house to see that all was in readiness for the feast. Thanks be to goodness it's over, Miss Shirley, ma'am, breathed Charlotte the Fourth, and they're married safe and sound no matter what happens now. The bags of rice are in the pantry, ma'am, and the old shoes are behind the door, and the cream for whipping is on the cellar steps. At half-past two, Mr. and Mrs. Irving left, and everybody went to Bright River to see them off on the afternoon train. As Miss Lavender—I beg her pardon, Mrs. Irving—stepped from the door of her old home, Gilbert and the girls threw the rice, and Charlotte the Fourth hurled an old shoe with such excellent aim that she struck Mr. Allen squarely on the head. But it was reserved for Paul to give the prettiest send-off. He popped out of the porch, ringing furiously a huge old brass dinner bell which had adorned the dining-room mantel. Paul's only motive was to make a joyful noise, but as the clangor died away, from point and curve and hill across the river came the chime of fairy wedding bells, 
ringing clearly, sweetly, faintly, and more faint, as if Miss Lavender's beloved echoes were bidding her greeting and farewell. And so, amid this benediction of sweet sounds, Miss Lavender drove away from the old life of dreams and make-believes to a fuller life of realities in the busy world beyond. Two hours later, Anne and Charlotta the Fourth came down the lane again. Gilbert had gone to West Grafton on an errand, and Diana had to keep an engagement at home. Anne and Charlotta had come back to put things in order and lock up the little stone house. The garden was a pool of late golden sunshine, with butterflies hovering and bees booming. But the little house had already that indefinable air of desolation which always follows a festivity. "'Oh, dear me, don't it look lonesome?' sniffed Charlotta the Fourth, who had been crying all the way home from the station. The wedding ain't much cheerfuler than her funeral, after all, when it's all over, Miss Shirley, ma'am. The busy evening followed. The decorations had to be removed, the dishes washed, the uneaten delicacies packed into a basket for the delectation of Charlotte the Fourth's younger brothers at home. Anne would not rest until everything was in apple pie order. After Charlotte had gone home with her plunder, Anne went over the still rooms, feeling like one who trod alone some banquet hall deserted, and closed the blinds. Then she locked the door and sat down under the silver poplar to wait for Gilbert, feeling very tired but still unweariedly thinking long, long thoughts. "'What are you thinking of, Anne?' asked Gilbert, coming down the walk. He had left his horse and buggy out at the road. "'Of Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving,' answered Anne dreamily. "'Isn't it beautiful to think how everything has turned out? How they have come together again after all the years of separation and misunderstanding?' "'Yes, it's beautiful,' said Gilbert, looking steadily down into Anne's uplifted face. "'But wouldn't it have been more beautiful still, Anne, if there had been no separation or misunderstanding? "'If they had come hand in hand all the way through life, with no memories behind them but those which belonged to each other?' For a moment, Anne's heart fluttered queerly, and for the first time her eyes faltered under Gilbert's gaze— and a rosy flush stained the paleness of her face. It was as if a veil that had hung before her inner consciousness had been lifted, giving to her view a revelation of unsuspected feelings and realities. Perhaps, after all, romance did not come into one's life with pomp and blare, like a gay knight riding down. Perhaps it crept to one side like an old friend through quiet ways. Perhaps it revealed itself in seeming prose, until some sudden shaft of illumination flung athwart its pages, betrayed the rhythm and the music. Perhaps, perhaps, love unfolded naturally out of a beautiful friendship, as a golden-hearted rose slipping from its green sheath. Then the veil dropped again. But the Anne who walked up the dark lane was not quite the same Anne who had driven gaily down it the evening before. The page of girlhood had been turned, as by an unseen finger, and the page of womanhood was before her with all its charm and mystery, its pain and gladness. Gilbert wisely said nothing more, but in his silence he read the history of the next four years in the light of Anne's remembered blush. Four years of earnest, happy work, and then the guerdon of a useful knowledge gained, and a sweetheart won. Behind them in the garden, the little stone house brooded among the shadows. It was lonely, but not forsaken. It had not yet done with dreams and laughters and the joy of life. 
There were to be future summers for the little stone house. Meanwhile, it could wait. And over the river, in purple durance, the echoes bided their time. And that's the end of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Thank you for sticking with me this just shy of five years that it took to finish this. And uh, come back next time. There will be a next time. We're going to do a short story interlude and then start a brand new book. Thank you all for listening and have a good night, everybody. <laughs>